Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this episode, you'll hear Matt Bauer. And then he turns to us and he says, Do you want to see my daughter? <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just want to say, you know, back in the days of black and white TVs, phones with wires. The only way for a business to avoid the post office was to lease a postage meter. But technology's changed. Postage meters haven't. Luckily, there's a better way to get your postage, Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can do so much more than with a postage meter for so much less. You can get official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, using your computer and printer. No extra hardware. And unlike a meter, there's no long-term commitments. You'll save up to 80% versus a meter. Plus, with Stamps.com, you can track packages. You can track spending and more. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now here's the... Fuck. <laughs> now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Tycho behind me now. This week's episode is live from Pittsburgh. We've never been to Pittsburgh before, and what a lovely city it is. A lot of gorgeous old architecture there. A lot of new tech companies starting up there. And of course, plenty of lovely people. Manny over at Garfield Artworks was helpful for us, and it was great to see Justin Zell over at Steel City Improv. So we sure hope to uh, be back in Pittsburgh ASAP, because they loved us and we love them. Now, we had a little bit of a um, of an imbroglio, folks. We had another imbroglio where one of our storytellers was uh, due to tragic circumstances unable to participate in the show but we bring you the three that were able to and when we return to Pittsburgh next maybe we can have the rectification of Imbroglio's past so without further ado here is our first storyteller of the evening live from Pittsburgh it's Stacy Keen with a story we call Samaritan Before I 
start my story, I have to tell you something really funny that happened. So I had listened to Risk, but um, you know, not as often as I want to. I'm a mom of two. And, uh, but when, as this show was approaching, I started listening all the time. I wanted to get ready. And this one day, my kids were home from school, and I was like, hey guys, I'm gonna listen to something that's, you know, explicit content, so stay upstairs, and if you wanna come downstairs, <laughs> let me know. And I have really good kids, so I knew that they would comply. And, uh, you know, throughout the day, my daughter would go, hey mom, I'm coming downstairs. And so I'd pause it. <laughs> And uh, later that afternoon, my son, who's 16 and thinks he's an adult, came downstairs and I paused it. And he's like, oh, mom, come on. I can totally handle some explicit content. So I said, well, by all means, pull up a seat. The next story is called Vagina, Vagina, Vagina. So he's like, no, I was just getting a drink. <laughs> So I too grew up in a small rural place that uh, was actually a little coal patch at the foot of the Appalachian Mountains, a little bit south of here. When you grow up in a place that's that rural and that religious, uh, you are surrounded by people who hide their bigotry and sexism behind the guise of conservative ideals. And I always found that environment to be so stifling that I was afraid I would suffocate before I got the hell out of there. But when I was in high school, I met two women who really changed my life. The first woman was my biology teacher, and uh, I had never met a hardcore feminist before, but she definitely was one. She had hairy legs and didn't wear a bra, and she taught us where our clits were and why it was important to know that. <laughs> uh, and she gave us a number to Planned Parenthood and told us that you know she would help us out if we needed to talk to them and our parents weren't cool. She would sit at the edge of her desk and raise her fist in the air and say, don't ever let a man walk all over you. My art teacher used to also say, never let a man walk all over you, but she would drop her eyes to the floor and look really distant like she was remembering something awful. Mm -hmm. She was happy, though, whenever we would come into Pittsburgh on field trips to go to the museum or to galleries, and that's when she would really open up and confide in us and tell us about how hard it was to be a lesbian teacher in a little town and... She made us all promise that we'd always be ourselves, no matter what. I realized on those trips in the city, that's where I felt like I could be myself. So as an adult, I took my first opportunity to move to Pittsburgh, and I was thrilled. Uh, even though I had holes in my apartment floor and a heater that didn't really work, I was right down the road from the JLCC, and uh, I got a job at a women's clinic. And that was my dream job. I went to work every day thinking I was going to do something to change the world, and I went home believing that I did. One day I went into work and I encountered a woman and a girl in the waiting room, and I took one look at them and I, I knew their story right away. The mother was sitting really rigid in her chair and uh, her jaw was clenched, and she was faced away from her daughter, and her daughter was slumped over in her chair. and. She was crying silently, and um, it looked like she was trying not to bother her mother anymore. I knew that the girl was there for an abortion and that her mother was not happy about it. The mother didn't offer me her first name, but she did say, it's not Mrs. anymore, it's Ms. So I imagine that she's a recent divorcee and that she's trying to raise her spirited teenager on her own. Well, her daughter, I'm, I'm going to call her Dolores, because Dolores means sorrow. 
I imagine that just a few weeks earlier she would probably be called Bliss or Joy because her face didn't look right frowning. Her mom opted to stay in the waiting room, so when I brought Dolores back, they both started to audibly cry. One of my jobs was to counsel the women before the procedure, and I brought her into my office. I told her, you know, what was going to happen, what to expect, what problems could arise, and I, you know, told her if you have any questions, you know, that's what this time is for. And through answering her questions and, you know, having her ask questions of me, I realized that she was date raped. And I felt like I had to tell her that she hadn't done anything wrong and that she wasn't alone and that she was safe. She didn't share a lot of details, but she did tell me that she was heartbroken and that her mom didn't believe her. When I brought her back to the exam room, I walked by her side rather than in front of her because I thought that might comfort her. When we walked in, I handed her a paper gown and a, a sheet, and I said, you know, go ahead and disrobe. I'll be right outside the door. Just call me when you're done. And then she looked at me and her tears on her face and pleaded with me to stay, that she didn't want to be alone. I wasn't supposed to stay in the room while, while the patients disrobed, but I couldn't leave her by herself. Someone should be there for her. So I turned my back, and as I heard her struggle with the paper gown, I tried to put myself in her shoes, and that wasn't very difficult because I'm a survivor of rape, and I couldn't imagine what it would have been like to not have my mother and my sister and my friends supporting me, and she was alone. When I turned around, she was sitting on the table with her legs dangling down, and she looked really tiny underneath the stiff sheet. As I approached her, I noticed that she had flip-flop tan lines on her feet, and I just kept thinking about how tragic it was that her summer was cut short. So I went to her side, tried to comfort her, and then there was a knock at the door. I assumed it was the doctor, but when no one came in, I went to answer it, and it was her mother. Her mother wasn't angry anymore. She looked very guilty. She asked, you know, can I please come in and be with my daughter? I'm really sorry. So I looked at Dolores and she nodded and I had her come in and she immediately went to her daughter's side. Now, the doctor who was there that day was a real asshole. Um, he, uh, he was a middle-aged doctor from the South and he always was impatient and disheveled and he wore expensive shoes. Uh, he kind of looked like he was living beyond his means. In fact, all of the doctors who work there seemed to work there because they were desperate for this job. This wasn't Planned Parenthood, this was a private clinic, and uh, I think their standards must have been lower. Apparently it's not easy to find a doctor who will perform an abortion. I was really worried about having to be a buffer between Dolores and the doctor, but I knew that I could because I had done that before. The doctor storms in, as usual, and uh, I could see Dolores just tighten up. And as he took his seat between the stirrups at the foot of the bed, uh, her eyes got really wide with fear. And he said, you know, spread your legs and lay back. And uh, she started to visibly shake. So I squeezed her hand and I said, it's okay, let your knees fall to the side. And at that moment, the doctor stood up and he looked at me and he said, you didn't tell her to take her panties off? 
and then stormed out of the room. So I, I felt horrible. I turned around and I said to the ladies, I'm very sorry, I should have been more clear. Um, go ahead and finish disrobing and I'll be right back. So I walked into the hallway and as the door clicked shut, I said to the doctor, hey, go easy on her. She's really scared. This is not an easy thing for her to do. And that man looked at me and I swear to God, with a smirk on his face, he said, well, maybe if she hadn't taken her panties off in the first place, she wouldn't be in this mess. I wanted to smack him in his face, or at least speak for her, but I knew that they were in there waiting for the procedure, and that's a hard thing to wait for, so I didn't want to hold it up. I walked back into the exam room with him, and I went to her side. We're not supposed to talk during the procedure. That was one of Dr. Adams' rules, but I didn't really care about his rules anymore. So I held her hand and I whispered to her, it's okay, you can do this, it'll be over soon. At first she whimpered softly, but by the end of the procedure, she was just staring blankly at the ceiling and her mother was crying in her hands. But when the doctor left the room, it felt like there was just a wave of relief washed over us and I wanted to run to them and embrace them and ask if they were okay but I knew that I wasn't allowed to do that so I just turned to them and I said the usual here's a towel if you want to wash up the bathrooms over there uh, but if you're gonna get up make sure you sit up for a bit so that you don't get dizzy I'll be right back to bring you to the recovery room I was walking out into the hallway and I was gonna look for the doctor so I could call him on his behavior and I was surprised that he was waiting there for me. And I said, hey, Dr. Adams. And at that moment, before I could say anything else, he laid into me and started to yell, you didn't tell her to take her panties off? You talked during the procedure? What's wrong with you? You're useless. I'm gonna have you fired. I didn't know what to do. I loved my job and I, I wanted to protect her and I, I just, it was too much. I just started to cry. And he looked at my tears and he rolled his eyes and he threw his arms up and he said, see, you women are all alike. Just then the mother was opening the door to see what all the commotion was. And I don't know if she thought that the insult was directed at her or maybe her daughter, but I know that it hit her as hard as it hit me and she slammed the door shut. I'm not sure what it was that day, but maybe it's because I'm a survivor, but I had this incredible urge to protect Dolores. So I stood between the door and the doctor, and with a strength I didn't know I had, I yelled at him, that's inappropriate, that's harassment, and you need to leave right now, that is unacceptable. And he looked shocked, like no one had ever called him on anything before. And he walked down the hallway towards his office. At that point, Clara, the office manager, came out and said, what's going on? And I briefly told her, but then I followed that son of a bitch down the hall to his office, and I watched him gather up his things, and as he reached for the telephone, I said, no, you can make any calls you need to make once you're out of here. I followed him to the door, and I locked it behind him. I had never felt so big and so powerful in my life. I felt like I had protected Dolores. I walked back down to the exam room where the women were waiting behind the door still. I felt so bad. I apologized to them and I told them the doctor's gone and I reassured them that they're safe, that the door was locked. And I brought them down to the recovery room. I'm not sure how many times I apologized to them or how many times they apologized to me, 
but after crackers and juice, I had to discharge her. When I told her that, Dolores looked as terrified as she did before the procedure, and I knew it was because she was afraid to run into the doctor. So I called the doorman to the apartments upstairs, and I asked if he would escort her out. As she left, I gave her my card, and I told her she could call any time, for any reason. But I didn't feel like I really did enough. I headed back down to Carla's office, and I said, um, hey, you know, are we, and I realized she was already on the phone talking to the main office and frantically telling them what happened and telling them that, that she, she demanded that something be done. As I stood there waiting for her to finish the conversation, the front door flew open and the doctor charged in. And I was completely shocked. It had, I don't know why it didn't dawn on me that he could have the key. I stood there frozen as he stormed towards me and Clara took my wrists and pulled me into the room and shut the door and locked it. He didn't have a key to that door, but he did beat on the door and he did yell, what are you telling on me, you bitch? What's wrong with you, are you lying? You're in there lying? If I lose my job, I swear to God, I'm gonna get you. I just hid behind the desk and Clara called the cops and she said, we're calling the cops, you better leave. And then he started pleading with us, please don't call the cops, I'll lose my job. And I just laughed at him. Ultimately, he left, and when the cops got there, there wasn't anybody to arrest, just a statement to be taken, which was so much less satisfying than seeing him carted away in handcuffs. But even though that was a really awful experience, I imagined that something productive would happen, that he would lose his license, or maybe he would just lose his job. So I went home, and I took a few days off, and I waited for that call to come, to tell me that he lost his job and that they wanted me to come back into the office. But that's not the call that I got. I got a call telling me that he was transferred to another office, two hours away. I didn't feel like I could go back to work. I felt like if they didn't fire him for that, then I don't believe that they have my safety in mind, and I don't believe that they have the client's safety in mind. And that was really sad. But ultimately, I had to resign. I often wondered, like, if I stayed, would the office have been a safer place? Maybe it would have been, but at what cost to me? You know, I didn't know if I was emotionally strong enough to do that. I carried around a lot of guilt for a long time about that. But I did realize that what I can do is tell this story you know, I feel like my teachers, when they would say, don't let any man walk all over you. Don't let them take away your rights, and don't let them hurt you. But the thing that's different about my story is that it acknowledges that sometimes those terrible things do happen. And I think that that's just as important, because without that, how are we going to know what more we can do to keep our daughters safe? wonderful and you know it's so nice to hear that story this very week because you know earlier in the show I was referring to how uh, I've experienced some rage recently a couple of days ago I attended this cocktail party it was just about eight people who were invited and they were all either prominent authors or teachers or entertainers around in the world of sexuality 
and all that sort of thing. And there were two women present who were especially famous uh, feminists. One, a very famous feminist author, and then another who was an important person in the film and TV industry. The evening started off with just such fun stories. We were just telling all these fun, silly stories like the one I told before, and just having a grand old time. But then at some point, the subject of trauma, sexual trauma, rape, that sort of thing came up. And these two women were clearly, they, they, they just had a lot of upset in themselves about this issue and they started taking it out on each other. One felt that there's a time and a place for people to talk about rape, but it's best that it be kept, you know, kind of maybe behind closed doors. The other was like, no, we need more, we need more, we need more. And it started to get very personal. There started to be uh, uh, some personal attacks flying across the room from people who had never met each other before. And it was when one of the other people in the room, uh, an educator in the room said, well, actually ladies, like Kevin's show is a perfect example of a place where all kinds of stories can live. And thank goodness that started to deflate things a little bit. It's really powerful to create places wherever you go, where it's okay to tell this kind of story or that kind of story. I think that that's, uh, that's an important thing for us all to remember. So thank you so much for that. I would like to bring our next storyteller to the stage. He is a man about town. <laughs> I just like saying that phrase. <laughs> he performs all over town. He contacted me when we put the pitch thing out, and I thought that this was so much fun. Please welcome to the stage Mr. Matt Bauer. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, unlike Stacy, I do not have a 16-year-old I have a two-year-old, but when he's 16 and a podcast called Vagina, Vagina, Vagina comes on, I say, come on down here, you got to listen to this stuff. <laughs> Back in November of 2001, I was working at a Kmart in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Now, Williamsport's a city about four and a half hours northeast of here. It's the home of Little League Baseball and the one-time lumber capital of the world. But I grew up in a much smaller town just outside of Williamsport, called Du Bois Town. It's a much smaller town. Everybody knows each other's business because they not only know, know each other. If somebody named Bob uh, is cheating on his wife and Bob's walking down the street, you look at Bob and say, oh, that's the guy that's cheating on his wife. <laughs> but at the same time, you kind of grow up with that small town sense of morality. If somebody needs a hand, you drop what you're doing and by God, you, you give them a hand. If somebody's pounding at your door at three o'clock in the morning because they need three pounds of sugar, you wake up and you get them the sugar. Well, I'm working at this Kmart in the home center department, and about nine o'clock at night, I get an incoming customer call. Of course, I answer like I would any other time. Oh, thank you for calling Kmart. How can I help you? And a really meek voice is the other end. He says, I'm a disabled veteran, and I can't make it down to the store, but I really need a doorknob for my house. If you could buy me a doorknob and deliver it to my house. I would be so thankful. I'll even give you gas money if you get me this doorknob. So I put him on hold. 
I thought about it for a second. There's nothing that screams, this is a good idea. Buy a doorknob for a complete stranger and deliver it to God knows where. But at the same time, I did grow up in the boys' town, so it was my job to help this disabled veteran. And I went to my friends, Dustin and Andrea, who also work in a Kmart that night. We were good friends. If we weren't working there, we'd probably be out looking for trouble anyhow. And I said, guys, listen, I'm going to do a favor for this guy. He's disabled. I'm going to buy a doorknob, take it to his house. Do you want to go on an adventure? <laughs> they are up for it, all right. I said, great. So I picked up the phone. I said, we're going to buy this doorknob and bring it to your house tonight. But then his voice became much more sinister. He says, well, I don't actually have the gas money on me, but I know a guy who lives nearby. Go to his house, he will have the gas money. So I'm thinking, okay, a little bit more adventure, even great. He continues, I live out in Trout Run. Now, Trout Run's about a half hour north of Williamsport. They call it Trout Run because out there lives nothing but trout. It's really, and the buses don't even run that far. He says, you're going to take Route 15 north about a half hour. Get off the Trout Run exit. Go about a quarter mile down the road. On your right hand side is a long, dark driveway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the end of this driveway is my house. But I have no electricity, so the lights won't be on. <laughs> but you'll know it's my house, because I'm going to put a Meet the Parents poster in the front window. <laughs> yeah. this, this is the year Meet the Parents came out, so I figured he's just a barely big fan. I said, great, we'll be there 11 o'clock that night. Dustin and Andrew and I get in our car, and we're driving towards this fella's friend's house. And it was kind of exciting at first. It's like, a, it's a scavenger hunt. We'll make the best of it. And we pull up at the guy's house, and you can see on the front door is taped an envelope with the word Matt scribbled on it in black letters. And none of us particularly wanted to be the one to get out of the car, because it seemed like a booby trap. So... <laughs> We did the only thing that was fair to all of us. We played paper, rock, scissors. Andrea threw paper, so the only girl in the car has to be the one to walk out and get the gas money. She gets in the car, she runs to the front door, grabs it, runs back. Sure enough, there's $10 in there. So, so far, so good. He's made good on his gas money, promise. So off we go, up lonely Route 15 North to Trout Run. You can see the lights of Williamsport kind of disappearing in the rearview mirror. To the left. Far in the distance is a light from a farmhouse. Over there, the silo. The moon was as big and bright as can be. It's one of those nights you don't even have to put your headlights on if you want to go driving. And we're kind of musing as to what this guy could possibly be like. Now, of course, I figured disabled veteran, a little old man in a wheelchair, harmless. So we get off at uh, the exit. Trout Run on Route 15, go about a quarter mile, just like I said, to the right, there is a long driveway leading into the woods. So we pull off and start rolling down this driveway. You can hear the pebbles and the stones kind of popping and crushing underneath the tires as we roll closer and closer to this house. And pretty soon, the big hemlock trees part, and there's the house. No lights are on, just like he said there wouldn't be. 
Gutters are kind of just sagging. Shingles are missing from the house. But sure enough, in the front window is a terrified Ben Stiller getting a polygraph test from a scowling Robert De Niro. And believe you me, there is not much more frightening than a scowling Robert De Niro in the moonlight. I figured this was the place. So we get out of the car and walk to the front door. And even the porch itself didn't seem like it had to, the support to hold the, the weight of the three of us. And we knock on the front door, and you hear footsteps coming to the front door. Not a wheelchair spinning, footsteps. <laughs> the doorknob turns, and the door opens, and there he is. Camouflage from head to toe. <laughs> Bandana on his head, big bushy hair coming out the back. He was wearing Rawlings batting gloves on his hands. And in his hands, he held a long metal flashlight, which was the only light in the house. His face was, was, was weathered. He had lines and wrinkles. And it's an older fella, and he had the eyes. The eyes of a man who had seen some shit in his time. The best way to describe it is like if you took the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski, put him in a blender with the G.I. Joe, turn it on for a while, then pour it, this guy was coming out. <laughs> Behind him, everything was in boxes, just boxes stacked upon boxes. And there was an old oven. It looked like it hadn't been used since the 60s. It was like a, I don't know, something you see in the Mad Men show, actually. And uh, a table and chair set, and everything was covered in about an inch of dust. And then Jack said, all right, I'm going to call this guy Jack. Uh, as a tribute to the scowling Robert De Niro outside, who played Jack in the, in the Meet the Parents movie. Jack says to us, do you have the doorknob? I held it up, show him we had it. He's like, good, come inside. <laughs> you wouldn't go inside, would you? Well, I did, and Dustin and Ernie followed me in. He takes the door and puts it down, and then closes and locks the door. This is the disabled fellow who seems to be fully capable of movement, and he locks the doorknob in his house, locking this on, even though he needed a new one. And then he turns to us, and he says, Do you want to see my daughter? <laughs> If his daughter is in this house, she's either locked somewhere up in a dark, dark room. Maybe he keeps her outside in the shed or a cage. <laughs> oh shit, maybe she's in the boxes! <laughs> so he's like, come here. Turns his flashlight on and he points it to the corner of the room where there's some more boxes where the table is. He follows his own flashlight beam, and we're following right behind him, flanking him to either side. And he pulls out a binder, like a three-ring binder, and he opens it up. And it's obviously like some kind of a scrapbook. It's all odds and ends inside. And he gets to a, an old newspaper article about a pizza shop that opened in downtown Williamsport. And he's kind of skimming the words. And he points to a picture of a woman in the newspaper article. Oh, there, see that? That's my daughter. 
<laughs> At least he wasn't in the box, I suppose. But you know what? It was like finding a milk carton that was 40 years old and seeing the missing person picture in the back. It might have been his daughter, but this girl was long, long gone. And then he turns to Dustin, my friend, my left-hand side, and he goes, I want to show you something. <laughs> and at this point, it was very foreboding, like some kind of big shit is going down right now. He points his flashlight over to the corner of the room. He goes, there's a trunk. I want you to open up that trunk and tell me what you see. <laughs> Now, <laughs> the trunk's in the opposite corner of the room from where we are. Andrea's stuck in position like she's a, a mannequin in the Sears department store. She's just frozen. And I'm kind of backing up toward the opposite corner. And this guy starts to slog over. And, and Dustin actually follows him over to the corner of this room where that trunk is. And he has the flashlight pointed right at the trunk so we can see what it is, a big red trunk. And the flashlight beam has the dust going through it real slow. Because that's about all it was in this house but him. Is open the trunk. So Dustin <laughs> leans down, puts his fingers in the crack, and starts to slowly open the trunk. The guy kind of like leers in behind him, puts his flashlight down, grabs a giant wrench. This isn't a small wrench. This is the kind of wrench, if you were a plumber, you'd call this your big gun. And he slowly starts to raise the wrench above Dustin's head. At this point, I'm thinking, oh my God, he thought I was going to be the only one to show up. He planned to beat my head in with a wrench and stuff me in that trunk. But because I decided to be a nice guy, my friend Dustin is going to get killed tonight and put in that trunk. I got to do something about this. I can do one of a couple things. I can scream, but the only one to hear me would be the trout outside. I can tackle the guy but I'm too afraid. <laughs> Frozen to the spot. Or I could put my elbow through this window and be the only one to survive tonight, even if my friends go too. It's all about survival. That's your gut instinct talking right there, my friends. <laughs> so, Dustin's leaning down and the guy has the wrench. And he holds it up and he goes, do you see what's in that trunk? That is an Andy Gibbs guitar. <laughs> and then that's where this is going. Duh, he just wanted to show us 1970 pop teen icons, Andy Gibbs guitar. What a nice he is coming. So then he actually closes the trunk and puts the wrench down and picks the flashlight up and thanks us for bringing the doorknob to his house. And he opens the door, says, thanks for coming. And on his way out, he actually says to me, if this doorknob doesn't work, can I take it back to Kmart? <laughs> Apparently, he's going to make it to Kmart himself. I didn't think he'll pick it up. And I said, no! <laughs> I was so pissed off I had to be there in the first place. I told him he couldn't bring it back. Of course, it's Kmart's policy. You can take it back. If it doesn't work, it doesn't fit. But I wanted to be in charge of this situation for a second, so I told him no. And we walked out of there, got in the car, and headed back to Williamsport. And of course, we're 
For the first 15 minutes of this drive, we're just dumbstruck. We hadn't even come to yet. And when we did, we discussed, what could this guy have actually wanted? Did he actually think I was going to show up alone and kill me? Was that his plan? Maybe. Was he uh, not so much physically disabled, but mentally? He picked up the wrench and didn't know what he was going to do with it. He wasn't quite sure if he had a plan himself. I guess that's possible too. Or maybe, as I like to believe, he was just a really big Andy Gibbs fan and he wanted to show us his guitar and it's the only way he could think to do it. I mean, it's possible. And you'd think this ordeal would be behind you, but I'm back at Kmart the next day. It's three o'clock in the afternoon, people are milling about the store, and they call me to the service desk. I go to the service desk, and there's Jack at the service desk with the doorknob. And he's talking to the lady at the service desk. And the lady calls me over. She goes, yeah, this fella brought a doorknob last night, and he said, you said you couldn't bring it back if it didn't work. And I didn't want to give his money back until I talked to you and figured out why that was the case. And I said, don't take it back. I was still so pissed off. All the members came rushing back. I said, I don't want you to take that back from him. Oh, that pissed Jack off. He walked up to me, nose to nose, cocked his fist behind his head like the wrench behind Dustin's head. And he said, I let you in my house. I showed you my daughter. I showed you my Andy Gibbs guitar. And this is how you treat me. I just walked away from there, thinking to myself, maybe it is a good idea to do nice things for people. Maybe. But if you do, my God, take some friends with you. <laughs> Thank you. find it interesting that there's a place called Du Bois Town. <laughs> Our final story of the evening, and it's quite something. I've really, this has been quite moving to be able to work with some of these folks on these tremendous stories. Uh, let me bring to the stage, you can find him on Twitter, at Silly Jordy. Please welcome to the stage. Jordan Sargent. So, uh, when I was in second grade, I had one real friend. We called him the Bad Blonde Kid. And him and I both had that ultra thin, silky blonde hair that only like prepubescent boys have, and charming smiles that hid the fact that we were usually up to no good. It, we weren't really bad kids, we were kind of just dickheads that took pranks a little too far. Like, at recess, we started a club called the Bee Harassers Club. And we didn't harass bees, we harassed other kids with bees. We captured, <laughs> we captured them in empty water bottles, and when they got good and pissed off, we'd release them on someone. And <laughs> we, we did shit like that all year until summer came, and. I lost touch with Blondie. I figured his family moved away. And uh, 
I hung around with the neighborhood kids and we got in trouble here and there, but I never had a friend that I could really conspire with like Blondie until I got to junior high and I met this kid named Jake. We were kind of unlikely friends. I was a chubby, long-haired pothead and he was a tall, pretty boy, but he had that same fucking smile as Blondie. Jake and I, like, we were in junior high now, so our antics stepped up a little bit. One time we got drunk and lit a bonfire in his bedroom, and another time we shot the windows out of his family's snowplow truck with a BB gun. <laughs> but one day towards the end of junior high, we were like 15, and I was just dicking around with Jake and his younger brother Alex. And he turned to me and he said, do you remember the Bee Harassers Club? I said, yeah, man, that was so shit. I, I didn't really remember Jake from second grade. Maybe he was such a dick now because I bullied him back then. I said, did we ever get you? He looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, with the bees, did we ever get a bee to sting you? And he didn't know what to say, so I changed the subject. And I said, what do you think ever happened to that blonde kid? And he looked at me like I had lost my mind. And he said, that blonde kid that was your best friend in second grade? That was me, you fucking asshole. <laughs> Apparently, I, I thought Jake reminded me of Blondie because he was Blondie. <laughs> I lost touch with him after second grade because his parents split up and he went and spent that summer in pretty much every summer since with his dad. And in fact, as we were having this conversation, we were getting ready for his dad to come pick us up because that summer I was going to go with Jake and Alex to spend the first two weeks and then again the last two weeks of summer with their dad, Rob. I never really connected with an adult before I met Rob, but I clicked with him instantly. We got along just as well as I did with Jake and Alex. He was a drummer and I was a guitar player, but he was a fundamentalist Christian and the only band he liked to talk about was Striper, the Christian glam metal band from the 80s. <laughs> overlook that because he also liked South Park and he quoted Dumb and Dumber and Beavis and Butthead. So we're driving down to Rob's house and making fast friends. He only saw his kids a couple weeks a year so it was really important for him to be their buddy and by the time we got to his house he was like a 40 year old member of our crew. Uh, so we're staying with Rob and his wife Sarah who's a gorgeous tall southern woman and she drove a five-speed Mini Cooper which isn't nearly as cool as I thought it was back then. <laughs> and they had a stepdaughter named Amanda. She was kind of a shy, sad, grumpy girl. I never even had a full conversation with her while I was there. But Rob was a active member in a pretty large church and for the next two weeks we were his trophy kids. We went with him on Sunday morning and he started making the rounds, introducing us to everyone. Hey, these are my kids and their, their friend from Pennsylvania. And nobody cared. <laughs> so we had a few hours to decompress after the first Sunday morning service and then we had to go back for a Sunday night service. And, the introductions got more elaborate. These are my sons and their friend from Pennsylvania. They play guitar at their church back home. Again, nobody really cared. But with every band practice or weeknight service and Bible study, the introductions grew more and more elaborate. These are my sons and their friend from Pennsylvania. They play guitar at their church. They've won awards. Oh my God, they're awesome. And finally, the last Sunday before we were going to leave, the pastor stopped in the middle of a sermon about having faith and he said, you know, friends, there's some boys here from Pennsylvania and they've really got the spirit of God in them. Come on up here, boys. 
God has called you to heal the sick. I grew up in a Pentecostal church, like one step below those motherfuckers who play with rattlesnakes, so I'd seen some crazy shit, and maybe I was magic, I don't know. So we prayed over these people, one person after another, for about an hour, and they said they felt God move and that they were healed, and the pastor said they were healed. They still needed their wheelchairs and the oxygen tanks, but maybe it took a couple hours, I don't know. We went home after those two weeks with a big scoop of self-righteous cockiness on top of our already dickish attitudes. And for the first time, I couldn't wait for summer to be over because at the last two weeks, I got to go back to Rob's house. So finally, summer ended and Rob came back to pick us up. But this time, there was kind of a weirdness in the car. There was no jokes, no striper. It was just a weird fog around and after a couple hours of a relatively quiet ride he spoke up and he said you know guys we've been having some problems with Amanda she's been spreading a lot of rumors and it's causing a lot of trouble so just kind of leave her alone don't get her worked up while you're down here when we got to Rob's house Rob and his wife Sarah tried to act like everything was all right but the fog was there it was at the church it was pervasive and after a few days, he finally pulled my buddy Jake aside and explained to him exactly what was going on. And Amanda had started telling some friends and family members that Rob had molested her and that he had been for years. And the rumors spread through the town fast, but nobody believed it. Rob was an upstanding member of the community and his church, and he was the pastor's best friend in a leadership role. There was even legal action, and Rob was found to be not guilty. Nobody believed it was possible except me. I didn't have any reason to believe it, really. I never even had a full conversation with Amanda. But I could see it in her sad, shy eyes now. And I'd seen Rob's manipulation firsthand. He turned me from a chubby pothead into the healing hands of God in two weeks. So the next day when Rob and Sarah were at work, I finally had a chance to sit down and talk to Amanda. And all I could do was hope that she would say something first, but she didn't. She looked over at me, and all I could say was, Hey, kid, I'm going to fix this. And I don't know why the fuck I said that, because I couldn't fix it. I'm a dumbass kid. The, her friends, her family, judges, everybody decided that she was making it up. And I should have left it there as just a, an ill-advised empty promise from a fuck-up. But I was still on this helping hands of God hero kick, so I couldn't. And over the next two weeks, it became kind of a mantra. Every time I would see her alone, I would say, hey kid, I'm going to find a way to fix this. And when I would see her with Rob or Sarah around, I would just give her a real quick, hey kid. And she knew what I meant. One time she even cracked a smile because I gave a shit, and that was worth something at least. Alex didn't seem to notice anything weird in the air. And Jake didn't say anything to me, but I could see it weighing on him as the weeks drew on. He was getting stiff and tense, and his eyes were glazed over and sinking deeper into his face. None of us could do anything about it, because no one could help. So it was all I could do to muddle through the next two weeks, repeating this mantra to Amanda and to myself. On Friday, before we were going to leave, 
I waited until I knew that Rob and Sarah had gone to work before I got out of bed. When I came down the stairs, I saw Amanda coming in and she was obviously shaken up. She had tears in her face, so I went outside to see what had her so worked up. And I saw Jake sitting in a rocking chair with his jaw clenched tight. I said, Jake, what the fuck is going on? And he just said, he didn't even look up at me. He just said, dude, drop it. So I went to find Amanda, but she had locked herself in her room. So I figured that she had confided in Jake, but he wasn't having any of it. So I just had this one last day to get through and we could go home. So I went and found Alex, who is still oblivious, and we went out and dicked around in the woods for a little while and, until he saw a spider and decided we should go in. I mean, it was a big-ass spider, but it seemed less repulsive than being in the house at this point. And that night, after one last awkward dinner, I went to the cupboard to get a cup to pour myself a glass of coffee, and I saw this mug, and it said, World's Best Dad. And I about lost my fucking mind. World's best fucking dad. I had to do something. So I went up to the room that I was sharing with Jake and Alex, and I told Jake, dude, I know it's your dad, and you don't want to believe it, but she's not making this up. And that's when he told me what had happened that morning when Amanda was so upset. He said, I know, I talked to her, and I believe her. It's even been happening while we've been here. She's been sleeping on the couch, hoping that someone would hear him come downstairs. And neither of us knew what to do. Anyone who could help had already decided there was nothing to be helped. So we just sat there silently trading a sigh or a fuck. And at about midnight, Jake got up and went downstairs and he grabbed a 12-gauge shotgun out of Rob's gun cabinet. With his hands shaking, he put three shells into the shotgun and I said, dude, what the fuck are you gonna do with that? And he said, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna stay down here, and if my dad comes down the stairs, like Amanda says he has been, we'll catch him, and I'll hold him at gunpoint, and you can call the cops, and we'll make him admit to everything he's done. And at this point, it seemed as good of a plan as any, so I went into the next room, and I told Amanda the plan, and then we went and sat down and waited. But after just 15 minutes, Jake started shaking, tremors, like his whole body was in shudders. So I said, Jake, Give me the gun and you can be the one to call the cops. Now, I'd handled plenty of guns before. In fact, earlier in the summer, I fired this very gun. But when he handed it to me, something inside me broke. And this wasn't like when I was a kid and would lose my temper. I wasn't even angry. My anger was gone, or at least hiding. And I was cold and calm, and I was ready to take someone's life. And I didn't have the nerve to tell Jake then, but if Rob came down those stairs, there wasn't gonna be time to call the cops because I had a new plan. I was calm, but I was manic as fuck, and my mind was racing, coming up with plans and strategies. No, Your Honor, please, I'm just a 15-year-old boy hundreds of miles from home. I was scared. I was defending a helpless girl and myself. You see, I knew that I could manipulate the situation just like Rob could, and if I pulled that trigger, I would walk away. We sat there for the next five hours. My mind never stopped racing. How many times should I shoot him? Where should I shoot him? Should I say something first? Maybe I should shoot him in the legs and then say something and then finish him off. Maybe Amanda might want to finish him off. No, that would look bad. You have to look like you're panicked. Stick to the fucking plan, Jordan. So we sat there until 5.45. And Rob didn't come down the stairs. And I didn't kill anyone that night. 
We went upstairs without telling Alex what had happened, and we packed up our shit, and at seven, we left with Rob to go home. And on the way home, I crashed. I came down harder than I ever had from any drug. My anger started boiling back up from that place it had been hiding, and Rob was sitting right in front of me, and that motherfucker didn't know how lucky he was to be alive. And I stayed in this angry, pissed off, brooding state for the next few weeks. I had better days, but pissed off was my baseline. I was one of four people in the world who knew Rob's secret, and I had failed Amanda with my only chance to fix it. But that didn't last very long, because only a few weeks later, Rob was at a men's church retreat with 400 other men, and Sarah was cleaning the house, and she found something. It's never been clear to me what it was she found. No one really knows. But whatever it was convinced her that Rob wasn't who he said he was, and that Amanda hadn't been lying. So she packed up her shit, and she took her daughter, and they left. But not before stopping at the retreat, finding Rob, and dropping him to the ground with a stun gun, telling him that she knew what he was and that she was taking her daughter and he could fuck off. So now Amanda was safe, but I still felt like I had failed her. And now everybody knew, including Alex. So there we were, four kids, fucked up by the same events in completely unrelatable ways. None of us boys could understand what Amanda was feeling or what she would face in the future. And Amanda and I hadn't ever connected with Rob in the way that Alex and Jake had. They lost their father, their hero that they had on an ivory tower, just fell into an embarrassing heap of the worst kind of humanity. And then there was me. And I didn't lose my dad. I hadn't been traumatized or victimized. But I was still broken in a different way than the other three because I carried this deep fear of confrontation because I couldn't trust myself anymore. What if I went back to that place where my soul turns a cold shoulder to my hate? What if my anger goes back down into its hiding place and I just lose myself into that wave of cold, calm hate? What if a minor incident triggers that analytical, sadistic version of me? What if that's the real me? What if this bee harassing shit was an early sign? What if I'm a sociopath? What if I'm as much of a monster as Rob? And I fell into these weird fucking depressions where I blamed myself for not stopping Rob and for harboring this thing inside of myself. And it went on and on and at some point I decided I wasn't past bartering with myself. So I told myself, all right, I'm going to take this jar that I had been saving coins in to get a tattoo. And I said, once there's enough money in this jar to go take care of Rob, I'll go take care of Rob. But until then, I'm putting him out of my mind. What I didn't anticipate was how quick I could turn hate into cash. Because pennies and nickels turned to ones and fives and tens, and very quickly there was $300 in there, which was enough for gas to and from Rob's house and a box of shotgun shells. But at that point, I had already started to feel a little better because I had this murder jar that was like a teddy bear to me. <laughs> when I felt like I might hurt myself or somebody else, I could look at this murder jar and know I could just go fucking take care of Rob instead. I would wake up from a nightmare that I went back to that cold place and scan the room for my murder jar, and it was always there for me until it wasn't. I came home one day and there was $100 missing out of my murder jar. 
And I knew where it was. My dickhead roommate had taken it. I didn't even care that he stole from me. I would have given him the money if he asked for it. But he didn't take my money. He took my comfort. It was like ripping the head off a kid's teddy bear. So I confronted him about it, and he gave it back. But at this point, it was just cash. You can't put a new head on an old teddy bear. So I realized maybe it's time for me to grow out of this fucking teddy bear. I took the $100 from my roommate and the 200 that was left in the jar, and I went and got the tattoo that it was originally intended for. It's a silhouette of Bruce Campbell from Evil Dead, holding a shotgun above his head and one hand as a chainsaw. It's fucking stupid. <laughs> but I don't have the murder jar anymore. And I don't feel like I need the murder jar anymore. Because here we are, the better part of a decade later, four kids fucked up by the same events, and Amanda is smart and strong, and she's going to be going off on her own soon, discovering that there's a beautiful world out there. And Alex is in college, and he's a poet and a painter, and he makes the most rad, fucked-up paintings that only a deeply disturbed kid could make. <laughs> and Alex graduated college and married his high school sweetheart and is working for the man, making a better life for himself. And Rob... He lost his family, he lost his friends, he lost his house, and he lost his jaw. Because he got fucking cancer in his face and the doctors had to hack him up. <laughs> so the law failed Amanda, and I couldn't fix it, but the universe took care of this one. <laughs> all for this episode folks thanks so much to everyone in pittsburgh and we can't wait to get back this is caitlin park behind me now and if you would like to see a risk live show there's a hell of a lot of them coming up on may 22nd we are in new york and in los angeles that same night in new york we will have janine brito in la we will have david keckner 
and Jen Kirkman. On June 7th, we are in Washington, D.C., and we still need story pitches for that show. So if you're in D.C., go to the submissions page at risk-show.com and tell us your story. On June 13th, we're in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. We need pitches for that, too. On July 4th, we're in London, England. On July 22nd, we're in Chicago, Illinois. And we need pitches for those shows, too. So if you're in D.C., Chapel Hill, London, England, or Chicago, Illinois, go to the submissions page at risk-show.com and you could be a part of one of those shows and a part of the podcast here. By the way, if you're new to the podcast, be sure to check out some of our best of Risk episodes and be aware that the entire first season is now in the albums section of iTunes. Those are 99 cents each. You can also find our all-star episodes there in the albums section of iTunes. All great, great stuff not to be missed. Now, don't forget that Risk is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Network of Podcasts. Wonderful network of podcasts. If you've never heard of Maximum Fun, you got to get over there because there's so much wonderful stuff that comes out of Max Fun. But here's the thing we are listener supported. We very much rely on the help that the people who love risk give us financially. So go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and become a member or make a one-time donation and be sure to earmark your contribution for risk. Otherwise, look for us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. Look for me on Twitter at the Kevin Allison. And folks, today's the day. Take a risk.